0: Last week, I had the chance to go see one of my old high school coaches and watch him coach a basketball game. And I hadn't seen him in a little while, so it was good to go see him, and so I'm I'm sitting over in the stands, and I'm looking across the gymnasium at him coaching his team. And from the seat that I had, he looked fairly reserved. He didn't look nearly as intense as I remembered him being, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Every now and again, it seemed like he got into the game, but on the whole, you know, he's got a a nice blazer on, he's got his dress pants on, he seems to be just kind of put together. And uh, so after the game, we stopped by, and he's on the way to the locker room, and we stopped and talked for a bit, and uh, we get up close and personal, and there's like sweat dripping off of his face. I mean, passion is just absolutely oozing out of this guy, and there's an intensity to his coaching that the casual observer, namely me, missed. Or from across the gym, it just kind of looks like, oh yeah, I see what you're trying to get the guys to do. You want them to run over there. You want that guy to shoot. You definitely don't want that guy to shoot. You're, you're just trying to get the guys to do the things. But the intensity with which he was operating, uh, I, I totally missed. And that's kind of the picture I want you to see here in 1 Timothy 6. It's not terribly hard to see what the words are and what they mean, i.e. getting the players to move around like they're supposed to. But the intensity that Paul speaks with here is fiery, it's gritty, he's dug in, there's all kinds of passion oozing out of what he's saying. And I want you to see that, both in how we communicate, and if I'm a little intense this morning, it's my hope that you'll hear not just the words of this passage, but the tone of the passage and how I think Paul is delivering this to Timothy. Timothy. I want you to see in the passage, I'm not kind of making this up, but let's just look through at a couple of the ways I see this intensity. The first one is the verbs that are used are these like gritty, intense action verbs. You look at verse 11, flee, pursue. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold. Verse 13, I charge you. Not like I encourage you. Not Timothy, here's a good idea. No, Timothy, I charge you to do this. The idea of charging shows up in verse 17. Verse 14, keep the commandment. There's there's a fierceness, an intensity, an urgency that Paul's giving. But it's not just the action verbs here. It's also in chapter 6, he's ending the book almost identical to how he began the book in chapter 1. Chapter 1, it goes something like this. Hey, Timothy, avoid stupid arguments. Flee wicked practices. Realize both of those are pretty deep in your own heart. That's why chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, yes, these stupid arguments and wicked practices are deep in your heart and they're deep in mine, but praise God, Jesus is amazing. He'd come to show mercy to people like me and people like you. Can you believe it, Timothy? I can't stop talking about it. That's why chapter 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. That's how he kicks it off. He's like, yeah, you gotta know this, Timothy. You get to chapter six and you hear almost the exact same thing. Hey, Timothy, avoid stupid arguments, flee wicked practices. Both of these are deep in your own heart. And see the beauty of Jesus. He is amazing. And that's why, right in the middle of this passage, you see almost an identical statement to what was in chapter one. Look at chapter six, verse 15. Do you hear how amazing Jesus is in this? He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. You hear that? Chapter one, chapter six, he's beginning right where he ended. He started with the most important thing, and he's ending with the most important thing. It's like a basketball coach saying, hey, guys, this is a basketball, and the most important thing is you get this basketball inside that hoop. You got to get the orange thing inside the other orange thing. And we're going to run a bunch of plays, we're going to do a bunch of drills, we're going to work on defense and boxing out and passing and dribbling, we're going to do a bunch of wind sprints for conditioning, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is you figure out how to get the ball in the hoop, and if you don't do that, it's not going to go well. That's sort of what Paul's saying here. So the core question that he's asking, this is taken from verse 19, he says this, how do I take hold of that which is truly life? That's the core question. Verse 19, he charges, he says, take hold of that, grab onto that which is truly life. How do we do it? And the answer that he's going to give throughout this entire passage is this, you fix your eyes on Christ. You fix your eyes on Christ because there's all kinds of stuff that can get your attention and what better morning than this morning for us to hear the answer is that we fix our eyes on Christ with all sorts of other things that could be demanding our attention, good things that can be demanding our attention, and say so the ultimate thing is that you fix your eyes on Christ. And you never grow tired of fixing your eyes on Christ. You keep striving to fix your eyes on Christ. You see, First Timothy is a thoroughly Jesus-centered book from beginning to end, But as you've seen, it's also a very tactical book. It tells us how to live the Christian life. That's why the sermon series has been titled A Playbook for Disciples, because it's very tactical in telling us what to do. But what Paul's bookending all this tactical advice with is this. He's saying, look, you don't merely run spiritual plays just for the heck of it. You don't show up on Sunday morning to church and recognize pastors and deacons and urge them in to raise up holy hands in prayer just because you had nothing better to do on Sunday. Like, religious busyness has to be one of the lamest hobbies in the world. Like, if you're just looking for something to do on Sunday, go do something else. Seriously. But if you're persuaded that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign, then fix your eyes on him and gather with his people and see his beauty every single week. Not just to know more about him, not just to do things for him, but to have an intense longing and desire for him where your affections are stirred. I want to know Jesus like Paul knew Jesus. And every section of the passage ties back to that idea. How do I take hold of that which is truly life? By fixing my eyes on Christ. And so there's three sets of ideas here, where you flee this thing and pursue this thing, is sort of how I fix my eyes on Christ. Flee from this, pursue that. Flee this, pursue that. Flee this, pursue that. That'll be our outline. We'll work through it. The first one is this. He says, flee rebellion and pursue righteousness. Flee rebellion, pursue righteousness. That's in verse 11 So I'll encourage you to look back at God's word as I read from verse 11. Here's what it says. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's as if he says, Timothy, I've already explained so much, so just catch the urgency. Flee that, pursue this. And what is it, these things you're supposed to pursue in verse 11? I'm calling them rebellion here, but we know it's what comes earlier in chapter 6. Flee false teaching, flee discontentment, flee the love of money, flee from foolish quarrels, craving for controversy. Flee that stuff, Timothy. You got to pay attention to what's going on here, man. One of the things that happens uh, in the cookhouse sometimes, we've got this our, our dinner table is a farmhouse table, and it's got the, the wood put together, it's got some cracks in it, and, and sometimes our kids will knock over a cup. Which water is fine, milk is not so good, lemonade is a real problem with that sticky stuff rolling down through the table and onto the ground. And I say to the girls, girls, pay attention to what you're doing. I said, Well, Dad, I wasn't trying to knock it over. I said, Honey, I know you weren't trying to knock it over, but you've got to pay attention. Because this is creating a really big mess here. It's like Paul is saying that to Timothy. Timothy, pay attention to this stuff, man. Because I know you're not trying to go in this direction, but you're never going to drift towards holiness. You're never going to drift towards righteousness. You're always going to drift towards stuff that doesn't matter as much. Pay attention, Timothy you know, this past week I was having lunch with a guy and we actually opened up 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. We read it together and we started talking about the passage. And we we're looking through actually verse 11 and following. And, um, and he said, hey, what's your advice to me? How do I actually flee these things and pursue those other things? I get what the words are saying, but how, how do I do it? And I said, here's my advice to you. Pursue Christ through his word with his people. That's how you do it. That's how you're going to flee rebellion. That's how you're going to pursue righteousness. You pursue Christ through his word with his people. And so we started talking about his word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yeah, you get in God's word, and God's word shows you Jesus. But you don't just get in his word so that you can have knowledge. That'd be like In our basement, the the Legos are out and the lights are off, and we go down and I turn the lights on. I don't turn on the lights just so I can see where the Legos are and make a map of them. That's opening the Bible for knowledge about Jesus. No, I turn on the lights in my basement so I see where the Legos are so that I can walk across the room without stubbing my toe and stepping on those things and inflicting pain that is unlike any other pain in the universe. I turn on the lights, not for knowledge, but so that I can walk. And that's why you go to God's word, to see Christ, that he would strengthen you to walk, not just to know. And it's with his people that we are called to do this. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter writes, says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the interesting thing about that verse, it's very similar to this. All throughout the book of 1 Peter, the word you has been used in the plural. Y'all do this, y'all do that, y'all go this way, y'all go that way. You get to the end, and it uses the word you in the singular. Your adversary, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone singular to devour. The the, the picture in my mind is like those National Geographic TV shows where the lions are on the prowl and they're going to get the the gazelles or the buffaloes or whatever they do. And, And which one do they always get? The one who's behind the group. He's not with the safety of others. That's how Satan is prowling around seeking to destroy you. So there's a very real sense in which you flee rebellion, you pursue righteousness by fixing your eyes on Christ through his word, which gives light on how to walk, and with his people that protect you. That's how you flee rebellion and pursue righteousness. And so it's very critical. I mean, there are some of you that I've talked to, you attend, 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 but don't want to join a church and commit to it. Or you become a member, but you don't want to join a Sunday school class or a community group where you actually lock arms with God's people and follow Jesus together. Or you come and you do the Sunday song and dance, but you don't want to be meeting with people during the week in a discipling relationship to open God's word and read together and confess sin together and pray for one another. Like this is what it looks like to say, yes, I flee rebellion, I pursue righteousness, fixing my eyes on Christ through his word and with his people there's a second set of fleeing and pursuing that Paul lays out he says this is flee empty chatter and pursue eternal life flee empty chatter pursue eternal life starting in verse 12 here's what we read fight the good fight of the faith. You'll see this idea continue. He says this, "Oh Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You see, all, all throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's been warning Timothy about this empty chatter. There's a warning here of empty chatter that's that very pervasive. And it's not necessarily... Inherently sinful talk that he's warning about. Like it's not a sin to talk about these things per se but it's incredible, Paul is saying, how empty chatter can pull you away from Christ on other okay things but they cause you to lose sight of Christ and you haven't fixed your eyes on him even though you know about him. Let me give you a couple examples here. Chapter 1 verse 4, he warns of myths and endless genealogies that promote speculation. Chapter 1 verse 6, he warns of vain discussion. Chapter 4, verse 7, he warns of irreverent, silly myths. Chapter 6, verse 4, he warns of unhealthy craving for controversy. And here in chapter 6, verse 20, he warns of irreverent babble. See, the main thing on all of this is that it pulls you away from Jesus, and you don't realize it because you're not living this wildly sinful lifestyle. You're just kind of trudging along, going through the motions with other things, grabbing your affections more than Christ. I I couldn't help but read this section and think of uh, C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters. That's a classic Christian work. I would encourage you all to read it, but it's a very different kind of book if you're not familiar. Lewis writes from the perspective of Satan himself giving advice to younger demons on how to tempt human beings. Okay, so is, is it, get, get your mind wrapped around it, because I'm going to quote from it, but you've got to get the picture. It's as if Satan is giving advice to younger demons on how to tempt humans. And here's what he writes in one particularly famous passage. He says this, Doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, that being God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Friends, that's precisely how Satan works. If he has to use something big, great, but if he can use something small and you don't even detect it, even better flee empty chatter. It might be ongoing secondary third uh, theological issues, third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier, sixth tier theological issues. It might be a political obsession. Just empty chatter, endlessly pulling your affections from Christ. It might be a-, a non-stop deep dive on your investment portfolio. Just always going back there and it's pulling your affections away from Christ. It might be Always needing to talk about shopping and the shoes you're going to get or the tickets to a sports game you're going to get or whatever the case. There, there's so many different things that can be empty chatter that pull you away from Christ. In verse 12, he says, No, no, here's what you're positively supposed to do. Pursue this eternal life. Verse 12, he says, Hey, look, this is a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. It's going to take a lot of effort. Take hold of eternal life. Think about those verbs. Take hold. Implying we're often neglectful. We often don't take hold. We're just kind of there with it, dancing through life, but not intense like we're supposed to be. He says, remember, Timothy, your confession when you first saw how awesome Jesus was. And remember when Jesus himself made the good confession. He was in front of Pontius Pilate. It was really hard for him, and he took hold of eternal life. And remember, he came and he made the good confession, and Timothy, he's coming back. Take hold of these truths, Timothy. Don't lose sight. Jesus is better than any of this empty chatter. So for you in the morning, it can be very simple. What does it look like for me to take hold of eternal life, to flee from empty chatter, to simply say in the prayer life, Lord, today might go awesome. It might be the best day of the month. It might go terrible. It might be the worst day of the month. And it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. But I know regardless of what happens, Jesus, your love is better than life. You love me to the moon and back. Your love will never fail. Nothing can ever separate me from your love. And I'm looking to you for my ultimate meaning, not for redemption from bad stuff or success in the good stuff. But Jesus, I want you at the core. Say, Jesus, I I might have the best day... (laughs) In my business life, I might have my best parenting day, and I might have my worst one. I might love my spouse in ways that are just off the charts. I am crushing it today. Or you might not. Say, Jesus, I might be thoroughly satisfied in you. And although I would like to be married, I find great joy in you today. But whatever place I find myself, I'm saying, Jesus, I recognize your love is better than the life that you came. You made the good confession. You're coming back, and that is my ultimate identity, my ultimate worth all of my value. And it starts in the morning in your prayer life. That's how I flee empty chatter, pursue Christ, and ask him to give me affections for him. I tell you one thing that has helped me so much in this regard is a little book right here by Milton Vincent called A Gospel Primer. It's like 30 days of just short gospel prayers. And so I go through it every now and again. And it just helps me to turn my eyes back to Jesus. So I would flee empty chatter, pursue eternal life. Here's what I want to do. I want to give this away to somebody who's under the age of 18 here today. Is there somebody under the age of 18 that says, Pastor Justin, I would like that. I'd like to give this to you. Somebody would, would want it. Yes, sir, come see me afterwards, and I'll give it to you, okay? Adults, there's one in the bookstore, and you can get it on Amazon for $8.99, I think, so you, can, uh, <laughs> you guys can do that. But that's my encouragement. It's just a simple, practical way to embody that. But if you look back at verse 20, you'll see precisely what we're talking about here in a nutshell. Verse 20, Paul says this, "Oh Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it! Take hold of it! Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You get sidetracked on other stuff that looks attractive at the moment, and you move away from the gospel, and here's the lie. The lie is that as a Christian, I move past the gospel to something else. That's the deeper stuff, the better stuff, the next level stuff. Friends, you never move past the gospel. That's why every single time when you see Paul beginning to apply the gospel to life, he takes you back to it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. Right before that, Ephesians 4, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. You just keep going down. That's the pattern. You don't move past the gospel. We keep going back and pursuing eternal life. Here's the third piece. You flee greed and you pursue generosity how does fleeing greed and pursuing generosity help us to fix our eyes on Christ? Let's go back to verse 17 and read together. Here's what Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We'll come back to that phrase at the end, but I love that one. It's one of my favorite phrases in all of 1 Timothy 6, really the whole book for that matter, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Before, before Paul gets there, though, he's warning about the rich in this present age. Now, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean, Timothy, look out and figure out who the richest 10% of your congregation is and then give them this charge. Right? That, that, that's, that's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying is you are rich if you have more than just your basic needs, if you have any level of discretionary income. That's what chapter 6 and verse 7 from last week was getting at. That's, that's how he defines what it is to be rich. And so when we look at it that way, we recognize virtually every single person person at least in the American context is rich some have more discretionary income some have less but this is equally applicable and the other thing Paul doesn't say is he doesn't say hey find the rich in this present age and charge them to repent he doesn't say to have money to be wealthy is sinful at all no no he says what you do with it and what happens in your heart is what's critical he says three things he says one don't be proud because it's easy to think that you went out and you did that Yes, it was hard work that was required, but God is the one who provides every blessing. And then he says, two, don't set your hope on riches. They use the term financial security for a reason. It's really easy to set your hope on that. Paul says, no, 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 you've got to always be aware. Don't set your hope there, but rather set your hope on God because he's the source. Money's not the source. He is truly life. Money isn't truly life although it always seems to appear that way, doesn't it? Like, oh, there would be so much life if I just have that little bit more or that other thing there. He says, no, 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 take hold of that which is truly life. It's truly life to deny yourself, fix your eyes on Christ, and by fleeing greed and pursuing generosity, that's how I take hold of that which is truly life and fix my eyes on Christ. I will say this morning, if you're here and you're not in the habit of regular joyful, sacrificial giving, it might feel a little awkward to hear a pastor talk about it in in fairly direct terms like this. And we'll keep talking about it for a bit here. But I want you to know, at Parkside, what we believe is that every single aspect of our life is to be following Jesus, honoring Jesus, glorifying Jesus. And our finances is just one part of that. And so in every single aspect, we're seeking to follow him. This is normal Christian discipleship. And so it shouldn't be difficult to talk about, even though in some quarters... It is. And what happens after the warning that Paul gives is he gives three practical ways you could say, here's how you pursue setting your hope on God. He says, don't be haughty. Don't set your hope on riches. Do set your hope on God. How do I do that? Verse 18, he says three things. First, he says, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. In other words, he says, hey, it's easy to think I do the giving, let somebody else do the serving. I measure my wealth in that way. And He says, no, 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 don't, don't think about it that way. Be rich in good works. Recognize that riches bring comfort. They train us to seek pleasure. And we're better off to seek riches in doing good works. I'm sure you can remember at some point in your life, you say, boy, we didn't have this luxury, and we were a lot more blue-collar. We were tough-minded back then, and we've gotten soft as we've grown wealthier, right? Riches teach us to seek pleasure and comforts. He says, no, be rich in good works. That's how you should seek that. And the second thing he says is seek to be generous. Build habits of regular, joyful, sacrificial giving. Last week, we talked about three kinds of givers. I think most Christians are what we call three S givers. Their giving is sparing, it is sporadic, and spontaneous. Just kind of give when I feel like it. And then that's not what God calls us to. But rather, he calls us to be a 3P giver, to plan our giving, and give a percentage, and to seek to progress in our giving. Planned, percentage, progressing, where I'm growing in Godliness in all ways, including in my financial life. This builds on the Old Testament concept of the first fruits, where they would harvest, and they would give the first part to the Lord. So when it comes to our budgeting and our planning, we don't wait till the end of the month and see what's left over. I want to encourage you to get out in front of that. As you're putting your budget together, pencil in that generosity piece first. Don't wait till the end and see what's left. Imagine you have friends coming over, and you decide you want to make a ham. You get the ham, and you realize as they come over, there wasn't quite enough. And so you say, oh, don't worry, guys. What we'll do, we're going to have the ham, but we had spaghetti last night. I'll heat up the leftovers for you. You would never do that to your guests when they come over be so insulting. You'd say, I'm not honoring you right now. And why would we treat God that way with our finances? This analogy, I think, actually speaks to Christians who don't have the habit of giving, but it also speaks to Christians who regularly give out of their abundance, and they're not giving joyfully or sacrificially because it might be a large amount of money, but Paul's saying, you can give a lot of money and still be a lover of money. You can give a big quantity of money and not be generous. You just have a bigger pot to start out with. And so for all of us, it speaks right to the heart of saying, am I seeking to fix my eyes on Christ by, by fleeing greed, pursuing generosity, no matter how much or how little I have? And then the third piece that he gives, he says, also, guys, be ready to share. So, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. This word share is the word fellowship throughout the rest of the New Testament that means a holistic life sharing. He's saying it's not just like auto pay on the online giving. Be ready to share all of life. Be ready to share your home. Be ready to share your time. Be ready to share your talent. Be ready to share your listening ear. Be ready to share the wisdom you've gained through the years. Be ready to share everything. And this is how I don't set my hope on riches, but on God. I am ready to share, I'm generous, and I'm seeking to be rich in good works. This is how then you take hold of that which is truly life. Over the holidays at one point, uh, some of the, the women in our family went to see the Taylor Swift concert movie thing. I obviously didn't go based on my clumsiness talking about it. But imagine, just imagine for a second. Well, don't don't imagine. She's actually coming to Lucas Oil Stadium this November. I promise you I won't be there, and I won't judge you if you are there. But imagine this November. You walk into church, and you're talking about what you did yesterday. And somebody says this. Oh, I went and I saw the Taylor Swift concert at the IMAX. Six stories tall. 84 feet wide, 12,000 watts of surround sound. It was incredible. I have no idea what 12,000 watts of surround sound even means. It just sounds really cool. And somebody else says, oh, that sounds really cool. I went to Lucas Oil Stadium yesterday and saw her. They say, oh, you went to the real thing? Way better. I wonder if in our pursuit... Of generosity, we can say, I've truly taken hold of the real thing, that Jesus is better. And money in this world can promise us all sorts of IMAX experiences that seem really cool while you're in the moment, but the real thing of possessing Christ is of infinitely greater value. Take hold of that which is truly life, O Timothy." Fix your eyes on Christ, the eternal life, the sure foundation, the only secure investment. It comes to the end, and there's this little phrase at the end of the book. We'll conclude the book of 1 Timothy and this sermon with that last little phrase, four words. What's it say? Grace be with you. Kind of a mundane little phrase. Maybe you don't think a ton about it. Maybe you just read it and pass over in your Bible reading plan. But I think there's huge significance here. We don't pay attention to the the postscript that often. Maybe it's like this meme is how you think about it. You say, I don't always write biblical books, but when I do, I end with, grace be with you. (laughs) It's just kind of a, it's a tack on, you keep moving. No, I don't think it's just a tack on that sounds spiritual. I think Jesus is actually trying to say something here. Maybe think of it this way. Exodus 33, Moses is up on the mountain. God says to him, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. You guys are going to go alone. I'm going to send you ahead. And Moses says, no, that's not going to work. If you're not coming with us, we're toast. We can't do it. I know you're promising that these things will happen, but God, if you're not coming with us, why don't you just go ahead and end it right now? Because this is a waste of our time. I need your grace to go with me, he says. And it's as if Paul is saying a very similar thing to Timothy. Timothy, you need grace to go with you. Yes, I've told you tactical ways to live the Christian life. Yes, I've told you how awesome Jesus is. But you need the abundance of his grace to carry you as you go. And Timothy, don't forget, there is an abundance of grace because there was an abundance of blood that Jesus shed. And so if you, Timothy, will fall into his grace, fall into his grace and let it carry you. It's like being in the summer at one of those lazy rivers. You don't have to be a great swimmer to be carried by the grace of that lazy river. You just have to fall into the water. And you can go thinking you know better, but every time your foot hits the ground, it slows you down because you're trying to trust your own strength instead of the grace of that river moving you right through. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Just fall into the river of his grace. Collapse into it. Because it's all the strength you need. It's more than the strength you need. And you try and do it on your own, Timothy, you're not going to make it. Grace be with you. And Park said it's the same message. You can't do it on your own. You try on your own, you're not going to make it. Fall into his grace. And Parkside Bible Church, grace be with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the the gift of your word that you gave us. How it points out how glorious you are, how great our need for you is. How sufficient is your grace for all of our needs. Lord, we ask this morning you would help us to fix our eyes on you, that we would take hold of that which is truly life, the real thing, you. We ask by your grace you would strengthen us to flee from rebellion, from empty chatter, from greed, and to pursue righteousness and eternal life and generosity. We know it only happens by your Spirit we ask that your grace would be powerful in our midst today and every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.